right, let's pray. We've got a lot to get through this morning. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray for your help as I preach this. And I pray that we all might have soft hearts and ears to hear. And we pray that we might meet you, the living Jesus, as we study your word together. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are in a book series on the book of Acts, looking at being called and equipped to be a church for the city. And in the book of Acts, we read all that God does through his church as they spread the gospel and impact cities around them. But it begins in chapters 1 and 2 with Jesus, before he, sending, before, before he sends them out, he prepares them for ministry. And he gathers them for 50 days. 50 days after the resurrection, before Pentecost, before he fills them with his spirit, he's preparing them for 50 days. Last week, for 40 days, we saw for six weeks, he's repeatedly appearing to convince them he's alive. Time and time again, he appears to prove, because they had doubts like we would, that Jesus really is alive. Then after 40 days, he does something And then there's 10 more days before Pentecost. 40 and then 10. And this division, what happens after 40 days, is called in Christian history the ascension of Jesus Christ. The ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about my worldview, when I think about my faith, when I think about what anchors me in my faith, I think of, well, the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus on the cross, the resurrection, and the Pentecost, and it's amazing. But I kind of gloss over and quickly skip past the ascension. doesn't really form a significant pillar or anchor to my faith. And yet, Luke so thinks the ascension is crucial to be front and center in your faith, in your worldview, in your approach to life, that it's the only instance of Jesus' ministry that he repeats. Firstly, at the end of his book of Luke, and then at the beginning of his second book, the book of Acts. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at what is the ascension and why does it matter? What is the ascension and why does it matter for you and for me? as we're sent out into this great city of ours. So let's open our Bibles. Let's look at Acts chapter 1 together. And beginning in verse 1, if you don't have a Bible with you, it's on the screen. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them, hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. What is the ascension? What is going on here? Well, we see that Jesus arrived uniquely and he's departing uniquely. For 40 days, he's been appearing and vanishing amongst the disciples. But this vanishing is very different. He could have just vanished and gone, but the Father and Jesus wanted the disciples to see that this departure was significant. In Acts 1.9, it says that he was taken up. This is a passive voice. That means Jesus was not going himself, but as the Father sent the Son, so the Father now is taking the Son back. This is an act of the Father, and he's taking him back to heaven back to the place where God dwells. Now, many people are confused with what is heaven. It's not some geographic space. You don't fly to the moon, and on the dark side of the moon, you'll find God. It's the heaven and earth dynamic is, in the Bible, very clear to be two spheres of reality that overlap and interlock, but very different. And so Jesus has been taken up by the Father, out of earth into the heavenly realm. And we see that he's not just being taken up as is, he's being lifted up geographically. But the word here to lift up, to take up, is to one of reverence. It's like to lift your eyes to something glorious. That something significant is happening as the Father is lifting him up. And it's the word that we use in our creeds, that he ascended. That this is more than just a moving from earth to heaven, but he is being lifted up into the heavenly realms. And we see in Ephesians chapter 1 that he's been lifted up to be enthroned, to be enthroned. This is his coronation, that the victorious Jesus is being enthroned upon all the universe. In Ephesians 1, it says, when God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That God is taking, God the Father is taking God the Son, lifting him up and enthroning him at his right side on the throne of the universe. To be on the right side is an image in the first century of someone who is wielding the power and the authority of the throne to rule all things. Jesus is taking his place on the throne of the universe. That's why in Philippians 2, Paul writes, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, 
to the glory of God the Father. That as the disciples saw the ascended Jesus rise and disappear into the clouds, and the, the image of the clouds here is more than just the physical clouds, but the glory cloud of the heavens, that as they saw the physical man Jesus take on flesh in his birth, now ascend in the flesh, disappear through the clouds. And as he appeared on the other side of the clouds, he's greeted by the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven as they accompany him to the great throne of God and throne of the universe. And as they start to shout, glory be to the Lamb who was slain and who now reigns forever and ever. As the disciples then lost visibility, the great coronation began. The victorious Jesus, who came to defeat sin and Satan and death, marches up to the throne with the scars of victory in his hand and his sack, with the keys of hell and Satan in his hands, and he takes his seat. The victorious conqueror, the victorious king, now takes his place, ruling over all things. It's why in Revelation, when John is stranded, imprisoned on an island, has a revelation of Jesus. The book of Revelation is just a revelation of Jesus. And who did he see? He sees a lamb who has been slaughtered, who sits on the throne. And angels in the company of heaven all shout with eternal praise, glory to, be, glory to the one. Glory to the king of all kings. Glory to the one who has been slain. This is what's happening on the other side of the clouds. This is the ascension of our King Jesus. That's why in that moment, two angels appear to the disciples, realizing they don't quite what's, get, what's going on, and they say, Men of Galilee, why are you standing up at the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, it doesn't end here but he will come back again. In the same way he went, he will one day come back. This is the great day of the ascension of Jesus Christ, the coronation of King Jesus, where he takes his place on the throne of the universe. And that's why we sing, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne. But what does that mean? for you and for me? What does it mean that God took him and placed him on the throne? What does it mean for you and I as we walk the streets of our city and go to work and raise our kids? What does it mean? I want to draw out three things that we see through the book of Acts. Why the ascension changed everything for the disciples. Why it changed everything for the rest of their life. The first thing we see is this, that the ascension, because of the ascension, Jesus is sending you and me. He is sending you and me into the world to outwork his rule and reign. See, Jesus is not passively sitting on the throne. He's not sitting down going, whew, what are 33 years? Uh, time for a cup of tea. You see, in Acts chapter 1, verse 1 that we read, Luke says, I wrote in my former book all that be Jesus began to do and to teach. And the implication then is now I'm going to write another book of what he's continuing to do, but he's not doing on earth, he's doing from the throne of heaven. See, as John Stott wrote, the ascension terminated Jesus' earthly ministry. 
and inaugurated his heavenly ministry through the church. The ascension is the trigger, the detonator, the transition of how Jesus is doing his ministry. He's modeling it. He's demonstrating it with us on earth. And he's conquering the great enemies that we can't. So that when he goes to the throne, the victorious king, he sits down on the throne and gathers his church around him and go, now in my name, in my victory, go and bring good news to the lost. Bring healing to the sick. For death has been defeated. Sin has been conquered. And Satan has been, has lost his authority. See, Jesus is now the head of the church and we are his agents being sent out to roll out the victory of King Jesus. Daryl Johnson, who's a great author and pastor, theologian, defines the church, defines you and me this way. He says, we are ordinary, broken human beings gathered around the ascended Jesus to share in his life and be about his business in his world. That's why the last words that Jesus said to his disciples are captured in Matthew 28, when he said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I will be with you to the very end of the age. Do you see and hear the ascension language even in what Jesus is saying? He says, all authority in heaven and earth has now been given to me. I've won the victory. I'm now going to take my place on the throne of the universe where every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that all things must now come under the rule and reign of Jesus. And therefore, as my people, I equip you and empower you and give you my authority to go and bring good news, bring healing, bring justice, bring forgiveness, not in your own name, but in the name of Jesus Christ which is why just a few chapters later we read the disciples going out and they see that in their own strength they can't do anything, but they've gathered around the ascended Jesus and they're in now his authority and in his power. They're going out to outwork the victory of Jesus, to take every square inch of this world back under his rule and reign. And they come across a lame beggar on the way to the temple and they say, silver and gold I do not have, but in the name of Jesus, who is now seats sits on the throne of all things, get up and walk. See, this is what we are called to do in our streets, in our colleges, in our homes, in our schools, in our studios, in our workplaces, in our cars. As we go into the world and whatever sphere of influence God has placed you, we don't go in our own name, we don't go with silver and gold, but we go with the authority of the ascended Jesus Christ. And we say, in the name of Jesus, we are here to push back the darkness and bring the light. We are the agents of the ascended king. When Lizzie and I were called to plant the church in Los Angeles, we were living at the time in Raleigh, North Carolina, and we loved the church, amazing people. And when they heard that God was calling us here, a few of them said, oh, we want to move with you. We want to help you. Some of our great friends and still great friends said, we want to move with you. And so they were thinking, we were planning about selling homes and they were going to get jobs. They were looking on LinkedIn for jobs out here, all that kind of stuff. And we thought, well, why don't we fly out for the weekend 
to kind of spy out the land and look at where to live and what to do. And so we all got on the flight and we were all flying out here. And it was a really exciting flight as we were dreaming about this great adventure God has called us on. And we landed in LA and I landed with great optimism and joy that we had people coming with us and great friends. But within just a few hours, that joy turned to great disappointment and great sadness. Because almost as we landed and all the way through the two days that we were together, it was like for those two days that that veil that so often hides the invisible from the visible was torn apart slightly. And we could see and experience for those two days what Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians where he says, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of this dark age. And at times, and maybe in your life at times too, that visible and invisible disappears and suddenly you start to see and feel the darkness opposing you. See, when you step out into God's purposes, when you seek to advance His kingdom, no advance of the kingdom goes unopposed. And for those two days, we felt the opposition of the darkness. Some of the friends who came out had never really seen it firsthand before. They'd heard about it in the Bible. They'd heard about it, you know, missionaries in Guyana or wherever. But for now, they felt it and experienced it. And I sat them down Saturday night as they were white as ghosts. What on earth is going on? And I said, sometimes that veil is torn. The opposition is real. And I remember waking up on a Sunday morning, dropping them back at the airport. And as I waved goodbye to them, I knew I'd probably never see them ever again. <laughs> Not to criticize them. But they weren't called. And that's okay. They're great friends and God's using them in Raleigh. But I remember dejected, alone, Lizzie hadn't flown out yet with the family, and I was thinking, Lord, what do I do? Is this city too dark for your name? Is, is, am I going to get overwhelmed here? And I remember thinking, I've got to go to church. And the only church I knew was our friends up at Bel Air Press. We love Bel Air Press. And I, I drove up to their amazing, beautiful campus, and I was dejected, and I was sad, and I was disappointed. And I thought, God, what's going to happen? Is LA just too dark? And I remember sitting down and couldn't really worship. And then Mark Brewer, the pastor at the time, came out, and he said, I'm going to preach a sermon that I rarely ever preach. I'm going to talk about the authority of the ascended Christ in the face of overwhelming satanic forces pushing you back. And I started to weep. And I sensed God speaking to me, in the ascended Jesus, there is no darkness greater than his power. There is no place, a square inch on earth, that cannot over be, be overwhelmed by the love and grace of Jesus Christ. In the authority of Jesus, though Satan has power to wreak havoc, he has no authority in the name of Jesus. I remember leaving that church service confident and assured that though we face opposition, that though darkness is still around, that though the evils of injustice and racism and abuse are all around us, there is nothing that can stand against the power of the ascended Jesus. And in his authority, we go into our schools, we go into our communities, we go into our workplaces, not in our own name, but in the name of the ascended Jesus, who sits on the throne where all things would bow the knee at the victorious king. He is sending you in his name to see his kingdom come in this great city of ours.
Secondly, the ascension means that whatever you're going through, whatever circumstance you're facing, whatever the trial, whatever the suffering, whatever the pain of the past or the present, whatever the fear of the future, because of the ascension, Jesus has got this. Jesus has got this. So I don't know how you arrived this morning. Maybe you're feeling the opposition of being a Christian. Maybe you're being ridiculed or employment challenges or economic challenges or social rejection because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Or, many, or maybe it's just your life is going through the horrendous challenges that can happen to us all in this broken world. I sit with many who are going through traumas of relational disappointments, divorces, the challenges of singleness, the pain of being barren, the pain of your hopes and dreams of coming to the city seem to have crushed all around you. And at times you're thinking, Jesus, have you got this? Where are you? Why are you allowing this to happen? Why did you allow that to happen in my past, which I'm now just plagued by? Why are you happening? Why is this happening now? Where are you? Are you in control? Are you in charge? Do I got to take things into my own hands? But it's because of the ascension. It's when you have a vision, not just in your head, but in your heart, of Jesus seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father, that he looks in your eyes, and whatever situation you're in, he's able to look in your eyes and say, Gare, Sarah, John, I've got this. I'm in control. I'm in charge. I am seated on the throne of all things. You see, in in Acts chapter 6 and 7, we see this dramatically played out in the life of Stephen. One of the early church leaders who was only described as full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Who was a man of service. Was a man who was obeying God and seeing people come to know him in powerful ways. But because of his faith, he was wrongly accused and arrested and convicted and sentenced to stoning. And the great tragedy of the early church is seeing one of their own, one of their beloved brothers, Stephen, being dragged out into the streets and stoned and people gather around and hurl insults and throw bricks and rocks at him. And we read in verse 55, it says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And as the stones were coming and as he was being pummeled and he's starting to lose his very life, people could hear him say, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You see, in the midst of his greatest pain, the Holy Spirit did not give him a vision of Jesus on the cross, did not give him a vision of the empty tomb, did not give him a vision of the one day return of Jesus, but he had a vision of Jesus Christ standing in front of the throne, saying to Stephen, I've got this. 
Whatever you're going through, I'm working all things for the good. All things are now in my control. All things are now in my charge. And even your death, you won't die. In fact, the writer was right because he saw the throne occupied by the king of all kings, holding the keys of death in his hand. It never says Stephen died. It said he fell asleep. For Stephen at that moment, and I pray for you at every moment, the reality of the ascension, the reality of Jesus in control and in charge on the throne is a greater reality than the pain of your circumstance. He knew that because Jesus is on the throne, because Jesus did defeat sin and death, because all things are now under his control, Jesus can fulfill his promise that all things work together for the good. All things, even the good and the bad. He can overrule and he can intervene to work all things for the good of his church and his kingdom. You see, Jesus never creates evil. He never creates suffering. He never causes the world to be as broken as it is. That's the result of our rejection of him. But because of his victory and his ascension, he can now weave everything. He can undermine evil. He can overrule it. And he can even bring it into his good and perfect purposes. So I don't know what situation you're in today. It could be the tragedy of your own mistakes. It could be the tragedy of others toward you. And in those situations, do you see the risen Christ? Do you see him on the throne looking at you going, I've got this. I've got this. And then finally, the ascension means not only has Jesus got this, but no matter what, he's got you. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, because he's on the throne, he's got you. You see, in Hebrews 7, it tells us that Jesus is on the throne, and on the throne, he's doing two things. He's outworking his rule and his kingdom that will one day fill the whole world that righteousness and justice and peace is flowing out from his throne through the church and will be one day complete when he returns. But he's not just ruling, but he's also, in Hebrews 7, it says he's interceding for us. That the throne room is also the courtroom where justice is done. It says in Hebrews 7, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Now, I don't know about you, but for many years, I was underwhelmed with thinking that Jesus is interceding for me on the throne. I thought, oh no, you know, because my image of intercession, my image of what this meant was, you know, Jesus pleading to, for God to forgive me again, because I mess up every day. I don't know about you, but I mess up all the time. And I'm thinking, oh my word, is this like Jesus turning to God the Father and saying, God the Father, you know Gare, you know the guy with the weird name, you know him, and you know that he's been working on X for a while now, you forgave him for that, um, and he, Gare said he'll never do it again, he'll try really hard. Well, I'm sorry, but guess what? 
he's done X. You know, and he's actually not just done X, he's done Y as well. And I'm here again, and God, Father, I'm asking, just give him one more chance. You know, just give him one more try. Uh, I, th- I think this will be the last time, you know. And I, I thought, oh my word, that's so underwhelming and that's so not comforting. Because if I was Jesus, eventually I'm going to go, you know what, I'm done, yeah. You know, you keep on doing it. And I keep on sinning. We keep on letting him down. We keep on bringing evil into this world. And I would have thought that eventually God the Father and God the Son just goes, you know what, yeah, yeah, too, I'm, we're done. But you see, Jesus isn't interceding for us like a great friend or a mum or a dad just pleading for mercy. You see, in 1 John 1, it says this, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Doesn't say he's faithful and loving, though he is. Doesn't say he's faithful and merciful, though he is. Doesn't say faithful and kind, though he is. He says Jesus is faithful and just. You see, Jesus approaches his Father not as just a friend pleading for mercy, but as an advocate, as a lawyer. John in John's Gospel, it says he is our advocate who represents us to the Father. And as an ex-lawyer, many of you are lawyers here maybe, we don't go to the judge just pleading mercy. We bring a case. We bring a case. And the case that Jesus is bringing is we read in Hebrews 7 where we said he intercedes for us because such a high priest truly meets our need because he has sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. You see, it's mercy that God sent his son for you and for me. That we didn't deserve it. We could never earn it. That he lived the life that we couldn't and died the death that we deserved because he is merciful to us. But now he has paid the price of our sin, past, present, and future on the cross. He has brought that all onto himself and sacrificed it once and for all. And so when he approaches the throne and intercedes for us to the Father, this is how it goes. It's like, Father, yeah, you remember Gare with the weird name? Yeah, he's done it again. He's done it again. I'm not asking you for mercy. I'm not asking you to give him one more chance because you know what? I think he's probably going to do it again tomorrow. You know, Gare. But I'm coming to you with a case. And Father, I paid for this debt. I paid for his debt on the cross. Look at my hands. Look at my wounds. Everything that Gare's ever done and everything that Gare will ever do, I took onto myself. I paid the price. Now, it would be unjust to take two payments for the same debt. So I'm coming to you and demanding justice for Gare by his acquittal. It was grace Gare comes to the throne, and it's by grace he remains. See, in James 2.13, it says, Mercy triumphs over just judgment. And mercy does triumph over judgment, but not by simply setting judgment aside. God the Father is not going, oh, I love guests so much and judgment or mercy. Oh, give him mercy. And forget this thing called judgment. But mercy triumphs over judgment because judgment is fully executed and fully satisfied in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
So that when you go to the throne and Jesus presents you in all of your brokenness and all the stuff you've done and all the stuff that you continue to do, the stuff that weighs us down, the shame, the guilt that makes us want to run from the ascended Jesus. Jesus is pointing to the Father and go, look at my hands. He's forgiven in my name. Mercy triumphs over judgment because I have been judged for him. And every day, the celebration that Jesus has got you, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've been, is being celebrated around the throne of Jesus, that there is nothing that can separate you from his love. Paul writes in Romans 8, he says, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the ascended Jesus who stands above your life on the throne of all things sending you out in his name. Who promises no matter what you face, he's got this. And no matter where you've been, and no matter what you've done, and no matter what you'll do tomorrow, he's got you. Do you see the ascended Jesus? Let's stand together. I'd love you to close your eyes. And Jesus, we pray that you, as Stephen had, we pray for a vision of the ascended Jesus. Seated on the throne with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven shouting, worthy, glory to the Lamb who's been slain and who now seats and sits on the throne of all things. And let this ascension shape everything in our life. And as we worship you now, King Jesus, we join with the angels, we join with the archangels, and say, worthy and glory to the one who sits on the throne.